Support for the show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Loom help power the collaboration needed for teams to accomplish what would otherwise be impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian software for everything from space exploration and green energy to delivering pizzas and podcasts. Whether you're a team of two, 200, or two million, Atlassian software is built to help keep you connected and moving together as one. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Support for PropG comes from ServiceNow. Seems everyone is talking about AI. The hype's everywhere. It's writing college essays, running earnings reports, and fabricating my voice so well that I'll no longer need to record podcast ads. Just kidding about the last one. But you know what's not a joke? ServiceNow's ability to put AI to work across your business. With their intelligent platform, you can improve customer experiences, help non-coders to code, accelerate your IT team's productivity, and resolve HR cases faster. So work can actually work better for everyone. So stop the hype and start putting AI to work. Go to servicenow.com slash genai to see why the world works with ServiceNow. Welcome to the Prop G Pod's Office Hours. This is the part of the show where we answer your questions about business, big tech, entrepreneurship, and whatever else is on your mind. If you'd like to submit a question, please visit officehours.propgmedia.com. Again, that's officehours.propgmedia.com. First question. Hey, Scott. Michael here coming to you from North Beach in San Francisco. Uber is trading out what I think is a discount. 16% below its IPO at time of recording. As America's closest thing to a super app where we can get alcohol, groceries, food, and transportation, is it a prime acquisition target, say, for Block to marry its crypto aspirations with the movement of goods of people? Or does it continue to flounder in the markets till it finds its footing? Thanks and love the show. Thanks for the question, Michael. So I want to acknowledge up front. Um, first off, I don't hear these questions before they ask, so we're raw and authentic, but I don't know a ton about the market capitalization of Uber. Uh, as we sit here today, it's trading at about 34 bucks a share, uh, which is almost at its 52-week low. And it has a market cap of about 67 billion. Uh, Uber went public three years ago at 45 bucks a share with a $120 billion valuation. So it's technically a broken IPO. Uber remains unprofitable, but it reported its first ever adjusted profit for the fourth quarter of 2021 when revenue grew 83% year over year to nearly $6 billion. The company had 118 million active users on its platform in the quarter, up 27% from the year prior and its greatest number yet. It's made more revenue that quarter by delivering food, $2.4 billion, than it did delivering people. That's interesting, isn't it? It's now kind of a food delivery company more than moving people around or a ride-hailing company. Uh, so Block's market cap is $54 billion. It's also trading close to its low, around $94 bucks per share currently. It's high. Get this, $290. So that stock's off about 63%. The thing that comes to mind here is what I think is going to be kind of the business term of 2022 that we haven't heard a lot about, and that is super app. And that is in China and India, we have these companies in transportation, in social, and in payments that develop a unified operating system such that they can command more of your attention per day. And those companies, whether it's Geomart, or Baba or Tencent typically become some of the most valuable companies in that ecosystem. We don't have a super app 
in the U.S. because Apple and Google are in the business of ensuring that no one develops super app status. Uh, Apple does it by putting out their elbows and charging a 30% fee to any app in their app store. Google does it by sequestering the entire online world and forcing them to pay a toll in the form of ads. So they have a vested interest in not letting any one player start to steal attention or time from them. But the first company that kind of shows up with all three of those assets can say we're Tencent or we're the first super app in the United States. And it's it's not a stretch to think that the company that develops super app status in the United States would trade at a Google or Apple-like uh, multiple or valuation, I should say, uh, and and start seeing an incredible appreciation in its stock market price. So I think Uber, if you will, is kind of the most likely component of the transportation part of a super app uh, status. So I can see a payments company saying, all right, if we connect with Uber, all of a sudden we raise our hand and say, hi, start calling a super app. So I think that uh, Uber is potentially uh, an acquisition target or a merger candidate. It's sort of become a little bit of a transportation operating system. It has a ton of interesting data. I mean, I look at it and some of the data, I think, okay, it's got a market cap of $67 billion. It's got approximately 118 million people. So what is that? It's it's about it's about $500 for active user. That feels like, okay, would I pay $500 for active user to buy a company? Yeah, you think that actually, if, when, you, when you position it that way, you think, okay, maybe it is a decent value. If you're, if you, would you pay $500 for every active Uber user? And you think, okay, the attention, the credibility that company has with those users, that's probably worth 500 bucks, your ability to monetize them. So yeah, I don't, I don't even know how to begin to value this company because it's never made money. And I have a bias against it because they use software to basically, in my view, circumvent minimum wage laws. Having said that, when I talk to Uber drivers, they like it. So who am I to judge? Uh, um, and my definition of a limousine liberal, an Uber liberal, an U liberal, Uber, and all like that, they've just taken that fucking word from me. I love saying, oh, I'm the Uber dog, or I'm the Uber gangster, or, I'm the Uber loser, whatever. Now I can't, and now I just think of this like ride-hailing firm, so I'm kind of upset about that. Anyway, uh, I think that the company probably is, I don't call it undervalued, but at some point, it probably is an acquisition target. You got 120 million uh, strong user base. That's beginning to feel kind of big tech-ish. In some, I don't think you value this company on cash flows or earnings. I think you value it based on its user base. And would that user base be more valuable to someone else? Or would Uber be one big leg of the stool of an emerging super app? Thanks for the question. Question number two. Hi, Scott. Kevin here from Berlin, Germany. Massive fan of the pot. Here goes my question. I'm a solo founder of a bootstrap startup. We build tools for UIX designers and are currently five people with a mid-six-figure annual revenue. We're currently considering to raise money. When is it, in your opinion, a good and when a bad idea to raise? We've been profitable from very early on, but I feel like raising money might help me to make bigger decisions more easily. Especially bigger financial decisions are still scary to me since for some reason I feel quite attached to the money that we've earned so far. My theory is that getting investors on board will push me into making those bigger steps and also treat money more like a means to an end. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on when getting investment is the right move for a startup. 
Uh, this is a tough one. So first off, I think you raise money when you don't need to, quite frankly, because when you need to, it's usually harder. Uh, it is a good time to raise money. We're going through in the U.S., I think we're about to go through a pretty significant drawdown in down rounds and valuations are going to come down in the private market because you have companies from Roku to Rent the Runway to uh, Shopify off 50, 60, 80%, Virgin Galactic, Clover. I mean, these companies are all off Robinhood, 70, 80, some even 90%. And the public markets are the tail that wags the private market dog. And the thing is they don't have to mark their book every day. So founders and their VCs are still in this consensual hallucination that, oh, everything's fine in the private markets. We're going to be fine. No, you're not. And recently, Tiger and Co2 just announced that they're going to cut back their growth investing in private companies because why would you do that when you can buy better deals in the public markets? This means you're going to see a lot of down rounds. A lot of companies that are churning through cash were hoping they could get to a point where they would get taken out at 20 or 40 times revenues by a SPAC of the public market, and that market is going away. We'll say, okay, this no longer makes sense. You need to cut costs. Uh, and we need to adjust our expectations. There's going to be a lot of pain. I went through down rounds in the 90s and the aughts. This generation of entrepreneurs just hasn't experienced down rounds, so I'm kind of curious to see how they respond. It involves dilution. It involves new terms. It involves uncomfortable conversations. It involves a leaking of leverage from the founder back to the investors, which entrepreneurs have not experienced. Uh, but it's absolutely going to happen. Now, having said that, having said that, you're sort of well-positioned, one, you're in Europe, and I think a lot of capital that was focused on the American tech trade is looking elsewhere in Latin America and Europe because valuations are better. Uh, the same types of crazy valuations at your level in Europe uh, hasn't happened in Europe to the same extent it happened in the U.S. So I think a lot of capital is looking abroad for companies like yours. Also, a lot of VCs, and even Tiger and Co. Two said this, that they were going to look further downstream at startups where they could own a large portion of the company for a smaller amount of revenue. So I think it's kind of up to you, but I think it's an honest conversation around one. Uh, do we like the idea of being able to go it alone? Taking money is, here's the bad news about investors is they want their money back. And here's even the worst news. They want more than their money back. They want the opportunity to make five, 10, 20 X times their money. So when I raised money for Red Envelope at a valuation of 120 million in 1998, I thought, yay for me. And what I didn't realize is, well, that means they think it's going to be worth 500 million to a billion. And it's like, well, are we really going to get there? Uh, and we didn't. We didn't. Anyways, it's not, I think not having to raise money is a real luxury. I didn't ever think I would raise venture capital again. Uh, and I have uh, several times over the last 10 years. And it kind of comes to my last lesson. I've only raised money from one firm, General Catalyst. I know the people there. I like them. I trust them. It's the kind of relationship where they send me a term sheet and I just sign it. Uh, they've always been not just fair, but generous with me. And they've made money from me. So it's just a good partnership. The majority of VCs I have dealt with, it has not been a good experience. It has been a tense, even rapacious a relationship or an ugly relationship. And some of that has been my fault. Some of that has been the environment. And some of that has been that I think most VCs are the smartest people you ever meet who don't know a fucking thing about your business. Generally speaking, I find, and this is very reductive, there are very few cohorts that are less pleasant, more self-absorbed, more convinced they're changing the world 
than venture capitalists. Uh, and I'm even going to be more regionally biased, specifically Bay Area venture capitalists. Anyways, I don't know if the same is true in Europe, but you're in the right place in Berlin. I think there's a lot of capital pouring in. The ability to raise money doesn't mean you necessarily should, uh, but just an honest conversation with your partners around what kind of business is this? What are really the capital needs and what it is? What's important to you? Anyways, thanks for the question and best of luck. Farfanugan, good to be you. Good to be you. Thanks for the question. We have one quick break before our final question. Stay with us. Support for Prop G comes from Fundrise. You know the adage, buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting Fundrise.com PropG. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at Fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Support for our show comes from Sonos. Usually when we read ads for the show, I get a whole page of talking points they want me to hit. But get this, Sonos sends me their latest portable speaker, Move 2, and no script. They just want me to share with you what I honestly think of it. And after listening to the speaker, I get why Sonos is so confident that I'd have good things to say. It's fantastic. It's incredible that this kind of fidelity and acoustics and sound comes from such a little device. I mean, it really packs a punch. And also, I have been buying Sonos for 10 or 15 years now. I know the CEO. I know people uh, that work there. They're just good people and a nice company, and they make an outstanding product. The battery life of Move 2 is so good giving up to 24 hours of playback and because it's weather and drop resistant you can bring it anywhere just think of all the places you could listen to this podcast what a drill seriously you won't believe how good i sound on this speaker every stream counts people come on come on invest in this relationship to learn more about move to and other sonos speakers visit sonos.com that's s-o-n-o-s.com welcome back Question number three. Hey, Scott, this is Jay from Minneapolis. I recently sold my company and now need to manage the proceeds from that, which I have no experience in. What are your thoughts on private wealth managers versus self-investing through research and diversification? Thank you. Well, that's a good problem, Jay from Minneapolis. So I'm going to say do as I say, not as I do here. Uh, My life changed dramatically in terms of my approach to money when my first kid came rolling out of his mother. And it just all of a sudden hit me very strong that this was no longer just about me and that I needed to start getting responsible and that if I had a big hit, great, but I was going to make sure that regardless I was financially secure, I may, I've always made a good living. So I started saving more and wealth is a function, not of what you earn, but what you spend or specifically how much you can save and your discipline around investing. And I also had the winds in my back, started really saving in the aughts tech boom comes along and uh, financial security followed. It also helped that I was a white heterosexual male born in the 60s because I had access to free education and access to processing power and the tech boom and the great liberties we joined America. So I, I don't want to, I want to ensure I, I, I recognize my privilege. But anyways, if you have money and you want to decide, all right, do I manage it or do I invest it? What I did uh, was that I managed, I self-managed. Uh, I 
At one point, I was a Series 7 licensed uh, representative. I worked at Morgan Stanley. I feel as if I understand the markets. Now, I get teased a lot on Twitter for my bad calls, which is mostly from a bunch of flying monkeys. I have been very fortunate with my investments. I've compounded at a good rate, which is dangerous because you start thinking you're good at it and you start taking stupid risks. But also a lot of it is I've had access to IPOs that other people don't have access to because uh, sometimes I advise the CEOs. But anyways, I like, I'm fascinated by the markets. I enjoy managing my own money. Having said that, once I hit a certain point, I've been, this is the third time I've been quote unquote economically secure, which is a more PG-13 way of saying rich. The first two times I was rich, I wasn't. I thought I was, but I wasn't. I wasn't diversified. I had a lot of assets in a company that wasn't public, that was supposed to be worth a lot of money, and then boom, overnight it wasn't. I don't want to go back. I do not want to go back at this age. I'm running out of time. So I diversify and I use uh, financial uh, wealth management. I use Goldman Sachs family office to now help me, save me for myself. And that is diversify, uh, manage my taxes, manage my retirement, my trust, all that stuff. These are really good problems. Uh, but uh, I talk to them regularly and they kind of save me for myself. And that is I try to never get in over my skis uh, around diversification. I think once you get above 40, uh, you don't want to have, unless it's your own company, you don't want to have more than 20% of your wealth in any one thing. That was always my mistake. I had no diversification. I always went really big into stuff, which is great, which works really well until it doesn't. And by the way, the wealthiest people in the world did the same thing. They had all of their assets in one thing, but that one thing worked out really well. And you don't know if that's going to happen. So I would say, unless you're fascinated with the markets and you're willing to diversify yourself, by all means, work with a financial advisor. They're good at what they do. Uh, I don't think they bring any real insight. They're not going to be able to get you into IPOs you, you aren't able to get into. All the IPOs I've gotten into have been a function of my relationship with the CEO. Goldman has no access to IPOs. They, I mean, they just don't. Or they give it to much bigger clients than me. But they're really smart people. They can help you manage your kind of total financial profile. I think it's really good to get outside advice, even if you decide to ignore it. Just logistically, you want to have your act together in terms of taxes and being able to start thinking about how you plan for retirement and set aside some money for your kids. And it forces you to think through your cash flow and your needs. So I'm a fan. I think it's very easy to be cynical about financial planners, but I think it's a good idea. Uh, so I would interview several, see who you kind of vibe with, and maybe you do a little bit of both. Maybe you turn 50% over to a wealth manager and you manage 50% on your own and have some fun. Jay, thank you for the questions and congratulations on what sounds like a liquidity event. Um, you're obviously very uh, fortunate and I hope you take pause to recognize how fortunate you are. Good problems, good problems. That's all for this episode. Again, if you'd like to submit a question, please submit a voice recording by visiting officehours.propgmedia.com. Our producers are Caroline Chagrin and Drew Burrows. Claire Miller is our assistant producer. If you like what you heard, please follow, download, and subscribe. Thank you for listening to the Prop G Pod from the Box Media Podcast Network. We will catch you on Thursday.